This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. Tonight, tonight's guest is a man I, I am getting to know this guy, and he is an incredible human. So, Randy... Uh, take it away, my friend. All right. Uh, my name is Randy. I'm a recovering alcoholic addict. I happen to be a gay guy. Um, I am an abuse suicide survivor, um, former law enforcement officer uh, whose career ended early because of PTSD. So there's a little sample of mm-hmm. uh, where we're headed here. Um, I believe that the disease of addiction, and we now know it is a disease. In my case, is uh, genetic. It's uh, family history. You know, my family is in this country because my uh, grandfather was a drunk lawyer who got disbarred in England in the early 1900s and came to Canada because of the shame of that and uh, married a lady and had a whole bunch of alcoholic kids and they started having kids and a bunch of them were alcoholics. But... As it stands, I believe I'm the only one who's clean and sober today. Mm. Um, Good for you, ma'am. So it's not, you know, it, it's not kindergarten. Mm-hmm. This is serious, serious stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I keep getting reminded, I guess, David, that, you know, everything that's getting to play in the media now is fentanyl and opioids and opioid crisis and safe injection sites and so on and so forth. But the fact remains that alcoholism is still killing more people than all those others combined. Oh, yeah. Which I find kind of shocking, but that's... And isn't the gap between them astronomical? Yeah. Like the numbers are so different. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's really surprising. I grew up out in the prairies up there, northeast of here, three hours or so out there in the Ball Prairie. And, uh, you know, I'm a guy who's headed for retirement now so sort of dating myself it was in time in a place where there was no such thing as gay i mean people used to say well because you know i was married for 10 years and you know came out uh you know when i was 30 some years old and they said well how could you have gotten married how could you not know it wasn't a matter of not knowing it's that there was no such thing Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't even remember the word gay until I don't think we started hearing that until the mid seventies, and you know certainly there were no role models or mentors. Um, you know, I remember going to college in the mid seventies and bumping into a guy who identified as gay, uh, you know, and who was obviously gay, uh, and and I was just shocked. And, you know, I tried to stay as far away from him as I could in case he was catching. Mm. Um, because I didn't really see myself as being gay. I thought that gay people were, I learned about them in Mad Magazine, mm. and they were always hairdressers, and their <laughs> name was always Bruce. And I can't cut hair, and my name's not Bruce, and so I thought, well, I, I can't be gay. So, honestly, I walked down the aisle to get married, and I never thought there was going to be a problem. I had no way of knowing about that, you know. Um, so yeah, um, college years and, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of the addiction, I had my first drunk when I was 11 years old and, uh, it was a full on drunk. 
complete with coming home with the wrong shoes and throwing <laughs> up and making a fool of myself and mm-hmm. having a man-sized hangover. Um, you know, I started hard right from the beginning. By the time I was 16 years old, I was already in big trouble with with alcohol. And, uh, you know, the 12-step recovery program sometimes talk about the real alcoholic will sometimes resort to pharmaceuticals, and I was one of those. So, mm. you know, by the end of my addiction, I was using prescription drugs, not my prescription, mind you, but someone's, I assume, along with alcohol. And, uh, you know, it... I, we believe that this is a progressive illness, and certainly that's the way it was for me. Even though I started hard and young, it just got harder as time went on. You know, 16 years old, I was asking for help, but there was no help in those days. You know, some of the, and the things that I had to do as a small town kid in that day and age to get alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, beg, borrow, steal, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. I I can remember drinking the wine, the sacramental ma- wine in the church where I was the altar boy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought, well, that one's going to be going to hell for sure. You know, I I thought, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm never going to get out of this alive. You know, but yeah. Um, yeah, the... Uh, Went to the college thing, you know, I, my dream was 2.5 children, a white picket fence, dog named Spot, Dodge Caravan with the wood grain Mac tack down the sides. That's, <laughs> I really thought that was going to be me. And so... <laughs> Sorry, that image is so funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I just had this dream ever since I was a little kid that law enforcement was a higher calling that, you know, we really were going to go out there and make a difference. So we were going to do positive, amazing things. And uh, some of us feel that we were betrayed, that we got suckered and that, uh, you know, things that happened to us um, was not at all what we were expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, my plan, I was working my plan, despite the fact that I was drinking, um, heavily right from the start um college taught me even more about drinking and uh everybody around me was getting a job and finding a girl and getting married and buying a house and Mm. doing all that and i just followed the program and uh but my drinking progressed and uh eventually the tipping point came because I was in those days, probably a binge drinker. You know, I, I was a weekend drinker and then the weekend started on Thursday and ran till Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And, uh, (laughs) I was a blackout drinker. And if some, anybody's listening and doesn't know what that means exactly, I've been told that it means your body continues to function after your brain has gone home to bed. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of guy. You know, and when I'm not using or drinking, I'm a pretty decent human being. You know, by and large, I'm fairly moral. You know, I have values and standards and integrity and so on. But as soon as you add chemicals to the mix, all bets are off. I, you know, I, I was the guy who took his clothes off and ran naked through the party and just crazy, you know, insane mm-hmm. stuff and drinking and driving. Oh my gosh. I mean, back in the day, you know, my, my test was if I could find my car in the parking lot and get the key in the door, that was my sobriety test. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And for the longest time, I thought that I was a better drink driver drunk than lots of people were sober. And maybe looking at Calgary, maybe that's still true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You might've been right. You might've been on to something there. <laughs> I wouldn't want to test the theory, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. And it just got worse and it just got worse and it just got worse. And then one day when I should have been 
settling down on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon evening and getting ready for the work week, I was out drinking and uh, didn't get home at all until the next morning when I should have been already at work. And uh, my wife had some choice words for me and she left matching black marks up the street in front of our house as she left. And uh, my boss called and said, I'm done covering for you, you drunken shit. And, you know, I, I could not stop drinking. Three days was my record. Mm. And so I went downstairs and hung myself. But I didn't have rope. And so I used extension cord. And every time I jumped off the chair, it just stretched mm. and stretched. And so... About four times later, I thought, oh. I'm going to hurt myself before I die here. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll take the pills. And I went upstairs and, and you know, there's many miracles in life. Mm -hmm. The mini miracle there was my wife had taken all of the prescription pills and gotten rid of them. And only the empty bottles were left on the bathroom counter. And uh, so I went out to the garage and started up the car and sat in the car and waited to die. But, you know, we had one of those whirlybird things on the roof and it was sucking the fumes out of the garage as fast as a car could pump them <laughs> out. And I sat there and I sat there and I sat there through one whole side of Willie Nelson and uh, still wasn't dead. And I went in the house and I thought, what do I do now? And the mm. newspaper was open on the front, on the kitchen table. And as I walked by, I saw, said, alcohol a problem. Call this number. Mm. So I called this number, you know, and uh, I grew up in the German Lutheran church and those little old ladies in the basement of that church scared the bejeebers out of me. Mm -hmm. And uh, once again, my higher power chose to play with my mind and uh, had the lady who answered the phone was a little German lady. And she said, we're having a meeting tonight at eight o'clock. Und ihr will pizza. And I heard the Sunday school teacher talking, mm -hmm. and I thought I was going to get to that meeting if I had to crawl, <laughs> and I almost did. Mm. But I got to that meeting, and when I got to that meeting, it was, uh, if it had been a churchy thing, mm. you know, like I had been exposed to 12-step recovery things before, and they were always in the basement of churches. And uh, I thought that it was just some extension of a Christian thing, and I didn't want any part of it. But this meeting wasn't in a church, and the guy who was running it was like an ice road trucker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he had a mouth, well, his second language was profanity. <laughs> and because the, you know, even in my brain-damaged space, I quickly grasped that this wasn't a religious program, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there was one guy at the meeting who had long hair and an earring, and I thought, oh, my God, there's like one cool guy here, you know. <laughs> and he asked me to go for coffee after, and I went for coffee, and he told me, I'll pick you up tomorrow night, there's another meeting. And I thought, well, I wasn't intending to go every night. I was only intending to go until people stopped watching me, and then I would just... <laughs> stop going altogether. But, you know, I was making a splash. So I started doing the recovery thing and I started not drinking. And I just kept doing that. And after a week, I found out, oh my, look at that. I haven't thrown up in a week. <laughs> you know, I haven't had to find liquor after hours for a week. In those days, there were no liquor stores. There was one mm. in town, you know. And it was government operated and you couldn't go there if you were intoxicated, they wouldn't serve you. And you couldn't use your credit card. Mm. And, you know, we didn't have Insta banks. So you, it required planning, mm -hmm. careful planning to be drunk all the time. And uh, so, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't all that easy. But yeah, I, I just kept not drinking and things started to improve. My wife came back and, uh, you know, we started trying to patch things together again. And, uh, you know, and then we just sort of did the deal for about four years. And then I started to realize that I wasn't who I thought I was. 
And it was those days, right, when it was new age and everybody was reading uh, Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan mm -hmm. Millman. And, you know, we were walking around with stones in our pockets and medicine bags around our necks and we were doing all kinds of funky spiritual things. And then, you know, and John Bradshaw, the inner child work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then somebody said, well, you should see a therapist. So I started therapy. And uh, <laughs> I remember, you know, <laughs> the guy says, he's sitting there. And I wasn't laying on the couch. I thought I'd be laying on the couch. But I was sitting there and he had his little yellow paper and he's writing notes and he said tell me about your childhood and i thought oh my god really mm. you know and he said tell me your earliest memory well i said i don't know first day of summer vacation running barefoot across the prairie you know oh how old would you have been I said, 10 he said you don't remember anything before you're 10 and you could just see his eyes light up. He mm. thought, oh, God, we've got a live one here. <laughs> you know. So uh, we started to realize that, the, I started to realize that the reason I had no childhood memories was because there was lots of bad stuff happened back then. Mm. And uh, it just, your mind doesn't allow you yeah. because it would overwhelm you. Yeah. So, you know, we started to take that apart bit by bit and, deal with things and uh, it's been a real blessing you know i i believe that in recovery whatever you are recovering from you owe it to yourself to go hard use whatever resources are available mm -hmm. to you you know the path that i took is not the path that it, everybody else should take everybody has to find their own road mm -hmm. and i was thinking today as i was doing my meditation and in my life, meditation looks like dog walking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm down to. That works. So I'm walking my dog this morning in the snow, and I was thinking, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Mm -hmm. In fact, I fear that the destination is, that would be kind of scary, because if you wake up one, I think maybe, what if you wake up one morning, you go like, aha, I now know the meaning of life. And you're dead. <laughs> Eureka. <laughs> so I don't want to get too well too early because yeah, no, what no. am I going to do next week if I get better by tomorrow, right? So, <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I don't think we have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was confronted with the possibility that my sexual orientation was problematic. Hmm. And my wife and I talked candidly about it and... You know, again, different time, different place. And uh, I really thought it was a mental health issue. I thought if I found the right therapist or took the right pill mm. or whatever, that it would just go away because I just thought it's sick. It's sick, dirty, and wrong. Mm. When I was young, I blamed it on hormones. When I was older, I blamed it on alcohol and drugs. And now I'm clean and sober and it's still a problem. Now what? And so we started investigating. And believe it or not, in those days, you could take a whole pack of money and go to New York, and they would connect electrodes to your testicles. And then they'd show dirty movies. And if you got aroused at the wrong times, they'd give you a few volts. Mm -hmm. And that was supposed to alter your sexual orientation. And we were seriously considering doing it until somebody got me and said, you know, I think it was a sober doctor said to give your head a shake. Mm. And just think about that. It's yeah. ridiculous, you know. I mean, it's like being born with blue eyes or brown eyes. It's like being born right-handed or left-handed. Mm. You know, you didn't want it too bad. Boo-hoo. You yeah. get what you get. Deal with it. And I realized that I was not the kind of person who could live a double life. And I think maybe there are lots of people who do live double lives. And that's... Their decision has nothing to do with me. Mm. But I cannot do that and stay true to my own integrity. Mm. And so we needed to go through the divorce process, and it was probably the ugliest, most painful thing of my life. I watched my best friend become my worst enemy. Mm. And uh, I've never seen her or spoken to her again. Mm. And it's uh, it was horrendous. And... Uh, 
but I came out. Mm. And I fell into recovery amongst the LGBTQ2S community. And uh, they were there for me, and uh, they were my family. Mm. Which was a lucky thing, because most of my family kind of walked away. As did most of my friends. It was the days that AIDS was coming into vogue, and, and we didn't know. Back in those days, we didn't know how you got AIDS. We didn't know, can you get it from hugging? Mm -hmm. Can you get it from kissing somebody? Can you get it? Is it floating in the air? Mm. We didn't know. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous. If somebody came to the house that was HIV positive, I washed everything in bleach because you just did not know. Mm -hmm. And I met all these amazing, wonderful, talented, beautiful young people. And uh, within five years, two-thirds of them were dead. Because in those days, if you were diagnosed HIV positive, you would be full-blown AIDS within two to three years, mm -hmm. and you'd be dead in five. And we used to make a sick joke that you couldn't get your suit back from the dry cleaner fast enough mm -hmm. to get to the next funeral. It was just like our own little Vietnam, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really was back then, too. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, you know, and we had no rights, right? Like, mm. I can remember some of us, we were in this spiritual-based recovery protocol. And, uh, you know, I was listening to Anya and burning candles in the bathtub and, you know, doing prayers and meditations. I didn't know what I was doing. I was studying Buddhism until my feet went numb. And, you know, it just didn't know what to do mm -hmm. and so we went back to the church of our raising a group of us and said you know we're gay people in addiction and we're trying to do a spiritual path to recovery and is there a place for us here and their response came in the form of a letter from their lawyer and the lawyer said that uh, they would disband as a church before they would ordain a gay man or perform a gay marriage and so, I mean, it was pretty obvious that we were not welcome there. Mm. And I was crushed. You know, I had been uh, baptized and confirmed in that church. I was, you know, told Jesus loves you no matter what. You will be forgiven, blah, blah, blah. And obviously it was all lies. And uh, so I had a hissy fit that lasted 20 or 25 years and uh, never went near organized religion mm. at all. And uh, at that point, I found the Red Road. You know, it's uh, the sweat lodges, mm -hmm. the spiritual practices of our indigenous brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And I discovered something that they had known for centuries called the Two Spirits. Mm -hmm. You know, in essence, they say that there are five sexual orientations. You know, that there's male-male and male-female and female-female and on and on and on, right? Uh, and those for whom it's very ambiguous. And uh, and I thought, I'm home. I mm -hmm. found a place. I can remember coming out of the sweat lodge the first time, and I feel I felt like I was born. <laughs> it was yeah. just, I was home. For the first time, I'd been accepted somewhere, just exactly the way I was. Except not really, because, you know, I... I cannot prove indigenous background, mm -hmm. so I feel like kind of a phony. And so the search continu continued, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, so I talked about, you know, when I was a little kid, I'd get my mom to sew little stripes on my pants, and I would pretend that I was the town policeman, and I would <laughs> patrol and all this, and I really thought. And, and just through dumb luck, I fell into law enforcement. And, you know, we did some good stuff. Mm -hmm. We did some valuable stuff. But uh, it was brutal. And the world was changing rapidly. They, I can remember we went to a gun call. And, oh, my God, we had never been to a gun call before. We talked about it for three months. Mm -hmm. By the time I left the job we were having a gun call every day mm -hmm. and nowadays i don't know the people who are out there tonight 
in the patrol cars. I don't know how they do it. I really don't. Like mm. it's it's just extrapolated. It's just gotten so much worse. And I have so much respect for the work that they're doing. And you know, it's uh, yeah, that's a tricky field, man. It's tricky business. Yeah, yeah. I remembered in those days that how confused I was because I talked about my hats. I had all these hats that I had to wear. I had the hat of recovery. I had the hat of law enforcement. I had the gay hat, you know, mm-hmm. I had all these hats. And you had to be careful not to get your hats mixed up because I was never out to anybody when I was in law enforcement. I didn't tell anybody. It was, the stigma was still huge then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I can remember one day coming home for dinner in the patrol car and uh, I was watching the six o'clock news while I made dinner. And there's this guy on the news doing traffic control at some scene. And the guy who's doing it looked like interpretive dance. And I thought, what in the hell are you? T- who are you? What are you doing? The guy turned around and it was me. And I thought, oh my God, I got my hats mixed up. I was being the gay guy with a police uniform on. Mm. And uh, I was just horrified, you know, that I was going to get found out. So it was a terrible way way to live. But what was the culture like then? Like, I mean, in terms of law enforcement, was it, I mean, obviously they didn't talk about it very much, but like, what was it severely negative towards it or? Well, I can remember one night taking a call that there was a huge fight in front of a gay bar and all cars were supposed to go to this fight. It was a huge brawl. The drag kings were kicking, <laughs> drag queens were kicking ass, and I thought I ain't going nowhere near this call. No doubt, <laughs> in case somebody recognized me. Oh, Randy! <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of I don't want to get my ass kicked by a drag queen. Though. I would stay away. Yeah, a construction worker wearing an evening gown and swinging a stiletto <laughs> heel is an ugly, ugly sight. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, and I mean, they all thought, we all thought that if you were gay, you were limp-wristed, you couldn't Mm. be counted on. You would, you know, faint and have a case of the vapors or something, you know? Yeah. Um, So I overcompensated, I Mm. think. Looking back, I was super tough instead, and uh, or tried to be. Mm. And I got hurt a lot, Yeah. you know? I can remember one night, it was in seven fights, one night. Wow. Like just ridiculous, you know. That's a busy night, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's how it was back in the day, you know. Um, and I met my first partner in a recovery group. And, uh, you know, he was First Nations. And uh, he went on to be the chief of his band, which was <laughs> fodder for jokes because that meant that I was the first. He was the first gay chief in Canada. Oh, wow. And that made me the first first lady in Canada <laughs> with a penis. Did you hear that, dude? I want you to write that down. He was the first first lady with a penis in Canada. <laughs> oh, was... I wasn't sure if you were writing the same thing or not, Darcy. So that's pretty awesome. That's how we're going to introduce your episode. Yeah. <laughs> we had the first first lady with a penis. <laughs> It was uh, amazing times, you know, but we both were addicted. We were both in early recovery. We were both pedaling really fast. And, uh, you know, sometimes I jokingly talk about that first relationship as being the seven-year death dance Mm. where, you know, we had lots of passion, but he was an amazing young man. And we still speak from time to time now. I mean, he's he's an amazing guy. I just... uh, some people, I, I don't know how it is. I wanted to be the guy who got married till death has to part. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it just hasn't played out that way for me. And it's more like when the appointment has been met, when the agenda has been kept, then they go their way and I go my way. Mm-hmm. And uh, neither one of us ever is the same again as a result of having mm-hmm. met. Um, of course. So I still, you know, I'm, even though that's many years ago now, it's... Uh, I grieve it still sometimes. And along about that time, 
I was diagnosed with PTSD and that's like 20 years ago. Mm. And that was early, early, early and nobody knew anything. Mm. And uh, so how that looked to me, I came in off shift in the middle of the night and I was exhausted and it had been a horrible night and lots of bad things had happened and just constant stress and reorg downsizing had happened and we had six cars on the street instead of 12 and it was just a perfect storm mm. and uh, as it happened i think there was 12 or 14 of us that all got diagnosed at the same time wow and uh you know i mean within a few years a third of those guys were dead like they off themselves mm. um so yeah i came home from work that night and i was exhausted and i just dropped my uniform on the floor and walked out of it and w fell in bed and stayed there and I woke up and the six o'clock news was on and it said it was Friday night. Well, it shouldn't have been. It should have been Thursday night and I had missed Thursday. Hmm. And I just went to sleep and never woke up for hours and hours and hours. And I phoned my doctor and told him what had happened. And in those days, you could talk to the doctor on the phone. <laughs> and he uh, said, you better come down here. So I went to the office and sat with him and he said, listen to this. And he said, yeah, you have PTSD. And I was medicated and I was off work and I went to saw shrinks and so on and so forth. And, you know, they didn't have too many options. They didn't have too many protocols then. I think mm -hmm. it's better now. But uh, in some places, it's much better now. Yeah. 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 And so I didn't really. Uh, we knew that I was done. We knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that work. I couldn't sustain that much longer. Mm. So I took a, a leave of absence and I moved to a different city and I started over again, tried to recreate myself. And by that time, I'm 40 something, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a plan and I don't know what the plan is. My, my business, I think, is to shut up and show up. Mm -hmm. So I get up in the morning and put my feet on the floor and I walk and uh, I do what's in front of me to do and sometimes it seems like I have some choices and I try and make the best decision I can based on what I have and uh, things in retrospect have worked out rather nicely mm -hmm. but uh, some days I was walking around in the dark and bumping my nose into the wall but uh, yeah it's uh, don't give up hope you mm -hmm. know I mean I can remember I went to Honolulu, Hawaii. I had decided about 15 years ago that I was going to commit suicide. I had had a, a relapse into PTSD because of a return of stress in my life and family deaths and, you know, life doing what life does sometimes. And I decided I was going to die. But then I realized I'd already bought airline tickets, so I should go to Hawaii. And I, I went to Hawaii, and I was at a conference for gay men in recovery. And uh, this guy asked me if I wanted to go to church with him. And I thought, why in the hell would I do that? But he was nice, and I thought, it's Hawaii. And, you know, I heard they had a brunch. <laughs> <laughs> Fresh pastries? I Boy, man after my own heart. <laughs> so I went to this... Uh, this little church service and it was not the church that we grew up in mm. and as i walked in they handed me a bulletin and the bulletin said had a little ad in it that said we're having a free um, session for survivors of trauma and sign up and mm. blah 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 so i signed up and i went to this thing and there was a guy there who had suffered ptsd himself and discovered a treatment protocol, something called somatic experiencing. Hmm. And so I spent, I went to that session. I had two or three private sessions with him. I came home to Canada for about three weeks. I got on an airplane, went back and had two or three more sessions with him. And it altered, it saved my life, mm -hmm. you know, just pure dumb coincidence and luck that. I happened to go to this church service that I wouldn't have gone to the week before mm -hmm. and met a guy who wouldn't have been there the week before or the week after. It just, you know, mm -hmm. the, everything fell into place. And uh, 
because this happened at a church, I thought, you know, there's several million people in the world who practice organized spiritual rituals for the betterment of their lives, and I'm missing out because I, I'm mad. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe I need to get over myself. So I started going to a church, and uh, and I still go to this day. In fact, I sit on the board of a church now, and I work with people who are indigenous or who are LGBTQ or who are addicted. I have those opportunities now. Mm-hmm. To turn my life. And I mean, that's the reason that I wanted to come here tonight is not for the glorification of this sad old man that's sitting in front of you now, <laughs> but because, you know, there's a wall of difference that lies in front of us, some of us sometimes, and sometimes we think we're the only one in the world. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If you're gay, if you're suicidal, if you are a law enforcement officer, if you have PTSD, if you have survived abuse or suicide attempts you're not alone Mm. you know all you need to do is reach out your hand and somebody will be there to help you because i don't know why but helping seems to help us yeah sure does and uh, i'm not always sure when i talk to somebody if i'm helping them but i always feel like i've helped myself Mm -hmm. it's kind of a selfish program but yeah it's kind of neat that way though yeah. It's kind of neat how it works, right? Yeah. When you reach out to others, you actually give yourself something you couldn't have got otherwise. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So post-law enforcement, I had some teaching in a college and I had some forensics and I had some not-for-profit sector and I had a relationship and we were wildly successful and had all the toys and uh, travel and blah, blah, blah. And then one day... He turned 40 and went crazy just like I had. And uh, he left. And I was crushed and I laid around in the Mm -hmm. fetal position and sucked my thumb for a couple of years. And then I met someone else who was sucking his thumb too. Mm -hmm. And he had lost his partner. Mm -hmm. And uh, we became friends. And now we've been together eight years. And we've been been living together for five And he is another amazing, talented man who just loves me unconditionally. And, uh, you know, and we both have warts and spots and broken parts. Mm. And uh, somehow his broken parts and my broken parts just fit together very nicely. Mm -hmm. And we're very blessed. We have these amazing lives that we live. We're, uh, We're very fortunate. Um, so going forward, I guess, you know, I was working with a transgender person a few years ago and this person asked me, cause we were away at a spiritual retreat for the weekend and said, okay, so big shot, uh, I didn't mention that my sobriety date is April 14, 1987. Mm. So that's like 32 years since I had a drink, which is pretty freaking remarkable when you consider I couldn't stop for three days Mm -hmm. on my own. It's incredible. Something happens. Grace is granted to you, and somehow you stay sober. Mm -hmm. And I'm that guy. I don't know how. It, It boggles my mind. But this transgender person said to me at this retreat, okay, Mr. Hotshot, you've been sober all this time. What's the secret? What have you learned? All of this spiritual quest and, you know, sat on the top of the mountain and talked to gurus and traveled all over the world. And, you know, my sponsor and I rode our motorcycles from northern Alberta to the Mexican border to a conference of sober people, 75,000 of us. And uh, he goes, what did you learn from all this journeying and so on and so forth? And I said, you know, what I've learned? (sighs) The Beatles got it right in 1964. All you need is love. Hmm. That's the answer. That's the answer. That's all I got (laughs) today. You know, it's uh, that really is the solution to every problem. When I run down this litany of who I am, 
the alcoholic addict, the gay guy, the, the abuse survivor, the suicide survivor, the cop with PTSD, all that. If you meet one of those people, what do you say to them? You know, mm-hmm. I had a phone call a few weeks ago, former law enforcement officer got into trouble, started drinking, got picked up for impaired, got fired from his job. His wife kicked him out. He can't see his kids anymore. Now he's homeless. And he phones me and asking me, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I'm listening to all this on the phone. And I thought, holy crap, I have no idea what to say to this guy. Like, where do you, oh my God. And suddenly the little voice in the back of my head or two inches behind my belly button, I think, Mm. said, just don't drink. Yeah. Because that was my answer. You know, April 14th, 1987, just don't drink. Just today, just today. No worry about tomorrow and next Halloween and on your birthday and New Year's Eve. Don't worry about that. Work today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the answer is love, you know. Mm-hmm. Just love yourself. It has to start there because if you don't love you, who the hell's gonna? Yeah. Um, when you say it doesn't sound hippie-ish at all, but when I tell people that, it always sounds like I'm a hippie trying to tell them to like hug a tree. Because the answer is love, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lot for like what we. What have you learned from other people? Like one of the biggest contributors to continued addiction and all that stuff is a lack of connection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Well, and and recently, I had an event where I have lowered my resistance or I've lowered my fear or my paranoia Mm. and you know the first 15 years of my sobriety i would not have alcohol drugs or violence in my home Mm -hmm. if anybody brought that they'd find themselves flying over the back stairs Mm -hmm. um but i've lightened up and uh my partner and his cousin were having a few drinks a few weeks ago and I was laying in bed because I have a little part-time gig that I have to get up in early in the morning. And I was whiny about not being able to get to sleep. And I thought, I should go out and have a couple of drinks with those guys, and then I'd go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'd go to sleep all right. I'd wake up naked in a jail cell in Las Vegas. <laughs> that's what I would do because that's who I am, and that's what mm-hmm. happens when I drink. Yeah. You know, I kid you not, when I drank... People told me this. We would have house parties and all the booze that came in the door because everybody would bring their own bottle. I would take all the caps off all the bottles and throw them in the garbage Mm -hmm. because we're not going to need any of those. (laughs) Nobody's going home until the alcohol is done. And I don't care if it's next Tuesday. That's the way it is. That's how I was. And uh, so I know that I cannot. I cannot drink. I will Mm. never, ever... The disease is not going to ever go away. We, we know stories about people who tried that. And so I'm humbled again, back into remembering that I'm an addict and uh, I need to take care of myself on a day-to-day mm. basis and I cannot let myself slide because I won't go too long that way, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah, um, going forward, I feel honored and humbled to be able to sit in a group right now of addicted first responders who usually, most of us suffer from PTSD Mm. and we meet weekly and it's been a godsend, you know, because for 30 years... I had to go and edit what I said mm-hmm. because I don't want to talk about being gay at a regular recovery meeting. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about being ex-law enforcement because most people there have had problems with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've had to edit and only show you certain facets of me. And there's one hour of one night every week where I don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. 
And if you live in central Alberta or northern Alberta or southern Alberta, chances are there is a meeting just like that not too far from you. Yeah. Just reach out because, yeah. uh, you know, we uh, trudge the road of happy destiny. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> but the only the way we do it is by reaching out and, and looking for that stuff that might be there. We just don't know about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think the stigma is still out there too that mm-hmm. that people who are in trouble with alcohol or drugs think that they're just weak, mm-hmm. and if they only exercise more self control, or if they ever tried harder, or if they just you know, you have a disease. Nobody would be mad at you because you were diabetic or yeah. epileptic. So. Why are we defending ourselves because we happen to have an addictive nature? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of us. A lot of us, yeah. yeah. And uh, whether your drug of choice is work or gambling or food or sex or money or alcohol or crystal meth or whatever, you are not alone. Mm-hmm. And... uh but you are in the grip of a killer disease and you are dying. Yeah. And uh, some of those diseases will take you real fast. So uh, don't fool around too long mm-hmm. because the clock is ticking. Yeah. And, uh, you know, recently I bumped into a fellow who was the nephew of another guy who was a big influence in uh, recovery circles years and years ago and I was so excited to meet this young guy who was the nephew of this guy and I wanted to phone some of those people that I knew back then and tell them oh my god Donald's nephew and I start to phone and no he's gone Hmm. oh no no she's gone Hmm. and I realized that uh, you know that the disease continues yeah and uh, you know it just uh it never sleeps. Yeah. You know, I heard a guy, right. a young guy say to me last week that while he's at some recovery place, you know, yakking away about recovery, his disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the, that's the common <laughs> one, right? Because it's at work when it's when you're not around it, that's for sure. <laughs> we're trying to get better and that's out there do, lifting weights and yeah, yeah, yeah. getting ready. So I know back in the early days, you know, I didn't say, talk about this, but when I was like 20 years old, I overdosed on alcohol. Believe mm. it or not, you can overdose. and You can get alcohol poisoning. Yeah. I wound up in the hospital mm-hmm. in this shitty little town out on the prairies, and they sentenced me to AA, and this guy came and picked me up and dragged me all over the place to meetings. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was on Valium, mm. like... I had no idea. And he had a really strong French accent. I couldn't understand what he was saying. And we were going to the basement of these musty Catholic churches, and all the guys in there had no hair or gray hair. And I had no sense of identification at all mm. with any of them. And I stayed sober for a matter of weeks, and I was back out, and I was gone for nine years. Mm. And by the time I came back, I had rope burns on my neck. You know, mm. it almost took me. Um, so Thank God you didn't have a rope, Randy. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, right? No. And that's what scares me too, because today I know how to die. Mm-hmm. You know, in those days, it was just sort of an idea. Bumping around in the dark, like you said, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm of that generation where all the rock stars died at 27 with a needle in their arms, yeah. you know? So dying young was sort of heroic, mm-hmm. but uh, it's uh, weird. So now the mystery of back then going to those meetings and all those old guys are sitting there and I would think, why are you sitting here? Like, I mean, if you've been sober for 300 years or whatever mm-hmm. stupid number they were blabbing about, why do you still need to go to these recovery meetings didn't make any sense to me and i think now i realize that it's because it never sleeps and uh, Mm. i'm either going forward or i'm going backward you don't get to stand still very long no and uh so i'm busy you know i go 
I go talk to other addicts, other PTSD sufferers, other mm. survivors almost every night, you know. Yeah. I'm doing something not because I'm going to get Nobel Peace Prize or anything like that, but because it's keeping me alive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if some stupid thing I said tonight, some silly joke I told tonight, um, catches somebody's attention and causes them to think, hey, wait a minute, I did that. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, I'm doing that right now. There's a place for you. Yeah. You're not alone. You don't have to do it alone. And uh, I think they used to refer to addiction as the disease of loneliness. Mm-hmm. So it's really a blessing that we find each other, you know. Oh, sure is, considering we're all such different personalities too, yeah. right? Yeah. We find each other and then actually hang out sometimes. Yeah. That's yeah, interesting. I have friends in the program who are clergy mm-hmm. and uh, former prostitutes and bank robbers, mm-hmm. and, you know. We do a meeting in the in the prison, which is hilarious. I mean, I, I've been doing that for 15 years and go in there and they lock you in there with these prisoners. And, into Bowdoin there? Uh, remand. Remand. Yeah. I've been in three different remands. Three different places. And so, uh, you know, the in the beginning, I, I kind of went in there feeling superior. And I learned at my first meeting that the only difference between those guys and me is that I'm leaving in an hour and they're not. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that they got caught and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Because I have done some silly shit. Yeah. And uh, if I had been caught, I would be sitting in there wearing those blue jumpsuits too. <clears throat> so it's it's humbling. It really is mm-hmm. humbling to, uh, you know, I mean... One of the gurus that I learned from um, was a little Roman Catholic nun, retired, who was also a recovering alcoholic. Oh, wow. And she used to run uh, retreats, weekend-long retreats, all over North America. Did an amazing amount of work. Just uh, the things that I learned there, you know, just such a sweet, kind, loving you know, I thought, oh, wait till she finds out I'm gay. She won't talk to me anymore. She's like, oh, I worked with gay priests all the time. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. Um, so, yeah. She's, uh, there's a hundred people that have influenced my sobriety. Mm-hmm. And what a blessing. I remember a guy, you know, I talked about being in therapy and the therapist saying, oh, you know, you're an abuse survivor. I thought, oh, come on. In the time and place where I grew up, if you mouthed off, you got one upside the head and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. Well, today that's abuse. Yeah. So you need to be really careful about, uh, you know, judging today on yesterday's standards and that sort of thing. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some bad things happen to people and I don't want to minimize that. And I don't know that, I don't feel like I've earned that title, which is just another part of the dysfunction and toxicity of dysfunctional families, Mm -hmm. you know, where you think, well, it wasn't that bad. Well, yeah, it was. A speaker said one time that he was talking to a therapist and the therapist said, "Uh, do you mean to tell me that when you were a child, you uh, didn't even have a bicycle? And he said he grew up in the 30s out on the prairies, you know, in the depression. Mm-hmm. He says, nobody had a friggin' bicycle. He says, one kid had a bicycle. They thought he was a freak and they beat the shit out of him. You know, <laughs> trash his bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> so, Poor kid. <laughs> you know, you got to be, <clears throat> you got to be kind of careful. But by the same token, that's not to say that getting smacked upside the head is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, because we, I think that's one of the weird schizophrenic things about me because I was out on the street for 15 years and, you know, saw lots of violence and lots of crazy stuff and and did some pretty crazy stuff. And yet today I say that the answer is love. Hmm. 
And uh, the funny thing about it was that even on the street, you would see the way people on the street helped each other. The homeless people, the addicted, the mentally ill mm -hmm. would look out for each other. They would make sure they found each other when it was 32 below zero and mm -hmm. one o'clock in the morning and make sure that, you know, so-and-so's got a place to go because they're not going to live outside mm -hmm. all night. These people might not have much, but they have love in their hearts mm -hmm. still. And I saw that every day. And that kept me out there for 15 years because uh, there's hope. Mm -hmm. There's hope. As long as there's a heartbeat, there's hope. Yeah. And uh, that's the... I mean, sometimes I've worked with people who became very close to me. And I have a friend right now who's out there using. And I've known him for 30 years. And he has gone through detox and he's gone through treatment and he's done all the stuff. Mm -hmm. And just cannot get it. And I just have had to just walk away because mm -hmm. I cannot fix that. And uh, like, it's killing me watching this. Um, it's not my business, you know. Mm -hmm. There is a entity out there somewhere, whatever you choose to call it, that's uh, got this under control, and I need to just let that go. Yeah. Because we don't get the we don't get to see the the bigger picture with the eyes we've been given, right? So it's yeah. it's just such a but I, like the guilt. There's always a little bit of survivor's guilt with me anyway, as well. Whenever I do a service, we did a, a funeral this afternoon for a young guy, and that survivor's guilt that you were talking about, and maybe you didn't say it in those words, but in terms of getting through the AIDS crisis, right, and and getting through there, I don't know about you, but for me, I think of the people that have been lost to mm -hmm. both like alcoholism and suicide and um, and the high-risk lifestyle of, well, being out and practicing high-risk behaviors. Because the, the two don't go together, though, right? Like, just to make sure there's probably people out there that are like, oh, yeah, I, like we knew all gay guys are like disgusting, right? And, and there's nothing further from the truth. If, you really, if they really want to know about that, if, if you have, like for my example, and I won't speak for anyone else, but in terms of that pre-coming out, the way that we act out or the way that I acted out previously to coming out was in order to die. It was in order to die because I didn't want to have to come out, right? I didn't want to have to tell my parents there was something different. I didn't want to have to go through that stuff. And I just wonder, like, I'm, and I wasn't even, I wasn't involved in that, in that lifestyle during the 80s and 90s when, when AIDS was killing everybody, right? I was afraid of it. I never talked about it back then. Um, and the fact that I even talk about it now is because of recovery, right? Uh, so I don't know. Is there anything you want to tell people before we shut her down? And um... well, Let's say that somewhere out there tonight, there's a person listening who is scared spitless mm -hmm. to talk about the fact that they're gay. Yeah. Or they're addicted or whatever, you know. Absolutely. When I told my father, uh, initially he kicked me out of the house and didn't talk to me for weeks or months mm -hmm. and you know, never did meet my first partner. Met my second partner conditionally. But now today uh, accepts us as a couple and looks at it as having two sons, not mm. one. Wow. So things change. Yeah. Drastically. Yeah. So don't think that the way things are today is the way it's going to be tomorrow because it ain't necessarily so. We mellow with age. That's profound, know? though. Because <laughs> I can remember being so angry with churches that I was the guy who used to say that I was going to get five gallons of gas and go burn the place down. Mm -hmm. You know, because I was that angry about these people who go every Sunday morning and dress up nice and talk about love and peace and blah, 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 but then hate gay people. Mm -hmm. Or hate people of color, yeah. or hate people you know who are divorced, or what? Like you either is or you isn't, you know. <laughs> yeah. You either love or you don't. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I saw a profound thing on Facebook the other day. It said if the church you're going to uh, makes you hate someone, you should find another church. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like that. 
I think that's true. You really should consider, uh, you know, because I have friends, you know, we're in the middle of this election thing happening, right? And there's yeah. an awful lot of painful stuff happening out there, uh, you know. And, and I know most of the people out there are allies. Most of the people don't care what I do, you know. But if you are voting for people who have those extremist views, you're basically voting against people that you care about. Mm-hmm. Think about that, you know. These, these uh, politicians need to understand that we put them in power mm-hmm. and we can take them out. And uh, we're not going to accept that stuff anymore, this hating people. I spoke at an event a few weeks ago, and there were white supremacists standing in the front row and hissing at me and growling at me because I was talking about love. Jeez. You know? Where was I mean, this? Can I ask? At the legislature in Edmonton. Oh. There was a thing called From Hate to Hope. One of my dear friends from Moscow Cheese organized at Chevy Rabbit and uh, it was because she was beaten on the street for being a TG for being a two-spirit and uh, many years ago and started this from hate to hope campaign and so every year we do this event and they have speakers and you know we all um, embrace acceptance and love and tolerance except that these guys showed up there and uh, you know we have to have police officers standing there with guns to protect us from them. Mm-hmm. What year is this? Yeah. 1939? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, things have come a long way, man. 30 years ago, um, this is a horror story. And these days, lots and lots of kids are having this experience where they come home and say, Mom, Dad, I have something to tell you. And they're sitting at the dinner table and... Uh, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. And Dad says, yeah, pass the peas. <laughs> you know, who cares? Yeah. Right? That's how yeah. it is for anybody who's sane nowadays. Yeah. Like, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I, I you know, I, I, my wounds are deep. Mm-hmm. I don't fully accept myself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the jokes and calling myself a faggot and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. it's like, that needs to stop. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, that, but that, that's what our, I think, any of us in that situation trying to make our peace with that, what we've done to ourselves, right? Yeah. In the name of trying to be, remain in the box that people had us in. Yeah. And, and most, I don't know about yourself, Randy, but like most of the time that box was constructed by me based on what I heard other people talking about. Yeah. Yeah. When when you just said that there about making those jokes, that just it it takes me back to when I was younger too, and it would would absolutely brutalize myself, like in the darkness, right? Yeah, yeah. But I would like to in addendum. Nice. <laughs> I went back to the church that I was baptized and confirmed in, and and subsequently kicked out of, and uh, my mama died of mm. cancer a couple of years ago. And she, it was her wish to be buried in that country cemetery with her other kids because I'm one of four and I'm the only one alive now. And uh, so I went to the minister expecting there to be trouble, you know. And I walked in there and I was the tough guy. And I said, okay, just listen. I'm talking. I'll tell you when you can talk. Here's what's happening. My mom's dead. My partner, yes, I'm a gay man. He's a singer. He's a very good singer. And he's singing at the funeral. And I don't care whether you like it or you don't like it. In fact, if there's a problem, I have another minister that I will bring. And we are doing this anyway. So there you go. And this guy's looking at me. He says, can I talk? I said, yeah, you can talk. (laughs) He says, we're not dinosaurs. And I says, well, you used to be. And he said, yes. But you know, he has become one of my dearest friends. Mm. You know, that whole thing has changed. You know, um, we all have made amends. We're all on a path. Yeah. And uh, how wonderful that is. Yeah, for sure. You know, sometimes we take two steps back, but we got to remember that mm-hmm. there's still light, you know. Yeah. There's, you know, no matter how dark it is, there was a saying one time, at least I lit a candle today mm-hmm. instead of cursing the darkness. Yeah. Wow. And that's, uh, 
You know, that's some days I have depression. I suffer and I don't want to be on meds because I'm an addict and I'll take 11 of them. <laughs> and so I have to tough it out. And uh, that's what I think, you know. Well, today mm. let's light a candle. Yeah, right on. I'm out of gas. Well, thank you, Randy. Thanks a lot for coming, man. I <laughs> appreciate you. Thank you for having you. me. It's a, it's a wonder. And for those out there that are, you know, if, if uh, you feel alone, no. Mm. Nope. We're here. Yeah. We're well, looking for you. Yeah, you betcha. And I just want to, before you close down, I just want to mention, if you're out there, if there's people out there listening, first responders, uh, law enforcement, fire, EMS, veterans, uh, if if you're looking to connect and get some help, maybe you don't want to go through your service or whatever, that's fine. Um, you can always reach out to us at Freedom's Path, and we can either connect you to resources that are more um, relevant to what you're going through, or we can also give you the information as to where these first responder meetings might be um, and let the people in charge vet you, obviously, um, to make sure that you are, in fact, a first responder because obviously stolen glory is a thing that people do. Um, so we want to be aware of that. Randy, is there anything you want us to attach to the episode, like your your number? Not Obviously not your phone number, maybe, but um, a website or anything like that? Um. Well, I have to stay anonymous because mm-hmm. to serve my own humility and to protect uh, those who are also in recovery. Mm-hmm. So I would just uh, say that you're a friend of mine. Um, yeah. You know, if uh, people want to get in touch, yeah. Okay. Get in touch with you. And, Perfect. Uh, we will work together because we're shoulder to shoulder. We're all family here. That's right. So, Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Thank you very much, Randy. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.